I'm Chris Cutler. This is Probes number 35. Launched in 1935 by Lawrence Hammond and John Hennett, the Hammond organ was a fully polyphonic instrument. It had two keyboards and a set of bass pedals, and it used tone wheel technology to generate five octaves of pure sine waves that could be combined in real time to create an impressive range of complex timbres. If this sounds familiar, perhaps it's because it reminds you of the Telharmonium, which we met back in Probes 33, because, to all intents and purposes, the Hammond was essentially a miniaturised version of that visionary invention, only now reduced from 182,000 kilograms to a mere 190, thanks almost entirely to the invention of the thermionic valve. The assembly of fundamentals and harmonics to create different timbres was controlled in the Hammond with a set of flat metal drawbars, not unlike organ stops, that were pulled in and out to determine the specific amount of each component of a tone that went into the sum. One drawbar regulated the fundamental and the rest controlled the octaves, harmonics and subharmonics that lay above and below it. And since each element could be controlled separately, a more or less infinite range of different timbres could be created, meaning that performers could design their own sounds on the fly unless they chose to use one of the many presets that gave automated access to sets of fixed drawbar combinations. The Hammond was the first of all the electronic instruments to date that was immediately accepted into the heart of mass musical practice, not only in the churches for which it was initially designed, but in any situation that called for an organ. And it was quickly adapted for home use in a smaller version called the spinet, as well as finding a home in jazz and popular music, where musicians quickly began to explore its less imitative and conventional possibilities. Although Fats Waller was its most famous early adopter, the woman who earned instant fame and the soubriquet First Lady of the Hammond Organ was the, I have to say, slightly spooky Ethel Smith. By not mistaking the Hammond for a conventional organ, she helped popularise it as a viable vehicle for popular music. Her most famous hit, Tico Tico, recorded in 1944, sold a million copies. And here she is a little later in the same year, playing it on screen in George Sidney's Bathing Beauty. Thank you. 
However, it was not Ethel, but Jimmy Smith, who gave the Hammond real credibility as a jazz instrument, and who went on to influence many of the players that came after, as well as laying the ground for some of the great rock organists of the 60s and 70s. Here he is, early in his career, defining the form with What Is This Thing Called Love, taken from the 1957 LP Confirmation, with Lou Donaldson, Art Blakey and Kenny Burrell. All the bass parts here are also by Jimmy, played on the Hammond's pedals. Jimmy's also famous, amongst organists at least, for his signature drawbar setting, launched after his move to Verve Records in 1962, in which the lowest three drawbars, the sub-fundamental, the sub-third and the fundamental itself, are pulled out all the way, with the rest remaining completely closed. Here it is on his interpretation of Elmer Bernstein's Walk on the Wild Side in Thank you. 
this all sounds familiar, it's because Jimmy Smith made it so. These extracts also show the way his playing style evolved. On the first example, he's still phrasing more like a saxophonist. In the second, he's well into a soloing style that's derived from the organ itself. Listen to that stuttering sound in the middle, which combines the Hammond's percussion tabs, which add a short, high-pitched chime to the front of each note the unintentional but useful key click that sounds when the key makes contact with the bus bar, and Jimmy's rapid three-finger trilling on a single key. Ten years later, he was still defining new blends of instrument and feel in this proto-funk edition of his regular band. This is from a live recording made at the Bombay Bicycle Club in Los Angeles in 1972. Smith's main influence, though, wasn't in the field of jazz, where organists were rare, 
but on a generation of young 1960s rock musicians who were busy absorbing all the languages they could find into their own and who collectively gave a voice to the Hammond for which it seemed, in retrospect, to have been born. Here, for instance, is the great Brian Auger playing his version of Gabriel Faure's Pavan in 1971. Indulge me here. I'll just add a little of the original at the end for your listening pleasure. Miles Davis mixing that post-rock sensibility with a kind of post-jazz aesthetic in one of his rare and idiosyncratic organ outings. This is from Rated X on the LP Get Up With It in 1974.
here's Dave Stewart from Egg probing the outer reaches of the L series back in Finally, the definitive Booker T. Jones. Just because it's exquisite, here's Willie Dixon, Ralph Bass and Sonny Boy Williamson's take on the same riff, which was released the following year with either Lafayette Leake or the Reverend William R. Emerson on the Hammond.
got to help me I can't do it all by myself You got to help me, baby I can't do it all by myself You know, if you don't help me, darling I'll have to find myself somebody Help me, help me, darling Although ubiquitous in jazz and pop, the Hammond's appearance in classical and contemporary music was almost non-existent, although Stockhausen made interesting use of one in his 1964 Microphony 2, where both organ and voices are run through four ring modulators, transforming the sound of both to create new sonorities by suppressing the input frequencies and allowing their sums and differences to emerge from the modulators. Yeah. 
Stockhausen used an L-series instrument, but the model that became legend, and which organists still covet, is the 1954 Hammond B3, and it had to be hooked up to a pair of Leslie speakers. Indeed, you can hardly mention the Hammond organ without including the Leslie speaker, although it had nothing to do with the Hammond company itself. Indeed, Lawrence Hammond resisted it strongly. The Leslie was invented by an American audio engineer, Don Leslie, who, after buying himself a Hammond organ, found that he missed that swirly sound organs produce in cathedrals and set out to replicate it. After a lot of experimentation, he came up with what he called the vibratone. This was a large louvered cabinet with a spinning horn at the top and a loudspeaker mounted below the centre pointing downwards. At the bottom, there was a slowly spinning drum that dispersed the sound to create a kind of Doppler effect. For greater complexity, both moving components were rotating at different speeds, and the sound was forced to bounce around inside the cabinet before it could exit through the louvres. It sounded like this. Leslie tried to sell the idea to Hammond, but Hammond wasn't interested. He even spitefully redesigned the organ speaker interface so that nobody could attach a Leslie to it. Don designed the workaround and continued to sell a lot of speakers, because players loved them, so much, in fact, that he never had to advertise. Absurdly, Hammond continued to harass Leslie one way or another over many years, to absolutely no discernible effect. Organists voted with their ears. Of course, it was inevitable that sooner or later, someone would wonder what else a Leslie might be attached to. And in 1964, Brian Wilson, wearing his producer's hat, recorded Paul Peterson's backing vocals through one for She Rides With Me. Famously, John Lennon did the same thing, and to better effect, two years later. But then, almost everything about this track was an innovation. The tambura and sitar drone structure, Ringo's unvarying and unrock-like drum riff, the deceptive bass part, the backwards guitar, the layers of tape sounds, and the lyrics that didn't even try to rhyme.
nor can I think of any earlier song on a pop record that had no chord changes at all. Much lauded now, it's worth remembering that at the time, most of the critics were dismissive, if not downright rude, about this extraordinary song. After that, the Beatles used the Leslie quite a lot, and later it became part of George Harrison's signature sound. You can hear it here in a cameo appearance George makes in a song he co-wrote with Eric Clapton. I would also nominate this as one of the great guitar entries in a pop song. Although by all accounts not really interested in music, and already doing exceptionally good business with his relatively conventional organ, Hammond's next project was truly groundbreaking, and specifically engineered to facilitate the creation of unfamiliar sounds. It was also completely electronic, using valve oscillators, subtractive synthesis, formant filters, divide-down octave technology and low-frequency oscillation vibrato, as well as attack, sustain, decay and release enveloping, in 1939. The tone wheels were gone. In fact, to all intents and purposes, the Novacord was a polyphonic synthesizer far in advance of its time. A quarter of a century later, both Robert Moog and ARP would use very similar architectures in their respective polysynthesizers.
although a landmark instrument, the Novachord was a commercial failure. Launched with great fanfare in 1939 at the New York World's Fair, where Ferd Grof performed daily public concerts with the, again sadly unrecorded, Novachord Orchestra, it was discontinued a mere three years later. Of the thousand built, fewer than 200 survived today, and only a handful of those are in working order. But it was widely used at the time by dance bands and in a variety of popular music settings. Here's Vera Lynn, for instance, the sweetheart of the forces, accompanied by Arthur Young on the Novachord in 1939, the year the instrument first appeared. Let's say goodbye with a smile, dear Just for a while, dear We must part Don't let this parting upset you I'll not forget you, sweetheart We'll meet again Don't know where don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Keep smiling through, just like you always do, till the blue skies chase those dark clouds far away. And if that sounds a little underwhelming, let's for a moment listen again to a surviving Novachord recorded in 2007 under modern conditions.
It's impressive. But here's how most players in the 1940s were using it. This is Collins H. Driggs, who premiered the Nova Chord at the World's Fair, playing Len Dressel's Parade of the Wooden Soldiers in technical quality of the older recordings fails to do justice to the richness of the instrument itself. But still, given the unimaginable flexibility and range of possibilities offered by the Nova Chord, here it is again...
It must seem a little strange that it was almost universally used for kitchen trivia, even if quite imaginative. I think we have to put this down to a failure of imagination. Broadly stated, no musical niche yet existed for the compositional possibilities the Novochord offered, and neither was there any existing musical platform for the creative exploration of its radical timbral qualities. At the time, only film composers seemed to grasp what it could do, and even they started modestly. Max Steiner, for instance, in 1939, used one as a kind of sophisticated Wurlitzer for his intermission music for Gone with the Wind.
year later, Franz Waxman made the uncanny sound of an overchord, the leitmotif for the always absent Rebecca in Alfred Hitchcock's adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's eponymous novel. Outside the novelty in film communities, however, Hammond's gamble failed. The popular mainstream disliked it because performers had to be constantly changing settings on the front panel to modify the sound, making it confusing and difficult to play. At the same time, the art community disliked it because it looked too much like another keyboard and they were looking for something more radical. Although discontinued in 1942, the Novichord continued to be valued well into the 1960s by film composers, precisely for its ability to create new timbres. Ferd Grof, for instance, who had led the Novichord Orchestra at the World's Fair, made great textural use of one in his score for the clunky 1950 sci-fi film Rocket Ship XM. And here's the redoubtable Jerry Goldsmith using one in his score for The Invaders in 1961. Never forget the great Harry Lubin, who used the Novichord a lot, alongside a Troutonium, in his soundtracks for The Outer Limits. When this recording was made in 1964, you can hear that musical thinking was finally catching up with the still underutilised Novichordian vocabulary.
The Nova Corps itself may have failed, but Hammond could still take the credit for creating a commercial niche in which other electronic instruments would increasingly flourish. A year later, for instance, the ondioline was eagerly adopted by musicians in spite of the fact that technologically it harked back to the monophonic valve oscillation instruments of the 1920s and 30s. Its particular strength, however, was that it knew exactly in which niche it hoped to flourish, and its inventor, the French musician, poet and instrument builder Georges Jenny, rather like Maurice Martineau before him, had carefully designed and promoted it accordingly. In the next episode, we'll be taking a closer look at the Ondioline and its many modestly charismatic siblings. I'm Chris Cutler. This has been Probes. Yeah.